Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Roel Sturks about his book, Food, Sacrifice, and Sagehood in Early China, that came out with Cambridge University Press in 2011. Now, this is a book that's going to be of interest to anyone um, who's interested in the history and culture of food and consumption, of sacrifice and ritual, of the, the relationship between text and practice in early China. Um, it's a book that weaves the uh, sort of the discourse about food and about ritual and sagehood together into a story that's about all of those things, but that also speaks to ideas of the human body and the body of spirits, the experience of communication across that boundary, and uh, the implication of sensation and bodily experiences to it. It's a fascinating book, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Roll. Hi, We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society and New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Roel Sturks about his recent book, Food, Sacrifice, and Sagehood in Early China. And that came out with Cambridge University Press in 2011. Now, this was an amazing book to read. It's a book that's not just about food and eating by humans, but it's also about food and eating by spirits and the ways that the relationship and the tension between these two worlds becomes extremely germinal and extremely productive. Um, I had a great time reading it, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about it with us today, Will. Well, thank you for uh, for having been through the book. <laughs> oh, it was my pleasure. And I think it's um, it's full of not just a lot of really interesting conceptual background, but also some wonderful um, sources and stories, and I think it's very broadly interdisciplinary, too, so... But very happy to read it. So, Rule, could you start us off by saying a little bit about um, just generally what brought you into the field of early China studies in particular? Why this period um, for studying China? Uh, basically, I've always I've always had an interest in sort of the classical the classical period, the period you know which saw sort of the uh, the emergence of you know the great thinkers that have influenced you know, Chinese philosophy. You know, for centuries to come, you know, Confucius, the Taoists, the legalists, and so on. And uh, what has always uh, worried me a little bit in the way in which we have been taught and educated about early China, the period basically leading up to you know the unification of China under the first emperor in two to one BC, is a is a landscape of uh, thought that could be neatly divided into schools that all had, you know, uh, a name attached to them that consisted of teachers with disciples that are basically concentrated or united around a particular set of texts. And so I've always felt that while that is obviously an, a very interesting landscape to explore, I've always felt that it is somehow um, turned, you know, early China into a little bit too much of a sort of a field of intellectual history. And so my one of the things that sort of drives my interest in the period is trying to sort of break through the perhaps, you know, too clearly pigeonholed um, <clears throat> landscape in which we have actually studied early China and tried to look for links between the more abstract ideas we find in philosophical texts and ways in which these things might have translated into actual practice into daily life, into religion and so on. So I find that an extremely interesting period for two reasons. First of all, there's a canon of texts, of course, that most of uh, most students who study China will somehow directly or indirectly uh, be exposed to, but at the same time, it's also a period about which we 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 know so little, and about 
uh, about which we increasingly get to know more because lots of new texts are being excavated, archaeologically covered texts and material evidence that constantly sort of reshapes our understanding of the period. And so you can actually you have a very satisfying uh, journey as a student through this period because you obviously can feed off a rich canon of transmitted sources and at the same time you can question and re-question them through uh, new text discoveries. So that's basically what, 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 that, what I find methodologically so interested about working in, in, in the field of early Chinese studies. That's great because you really can see um, those interests very much manifesting in the project. Now, the book itself explores how sacrificial religion, um, its philosophies, its practices, its rituals, um, helps shape the sort of the field on which or in which early Chinese ideas of sage had developed. And it also treats the ways that sacrificial religion influenced the way early Chinese writers, scholars were working out ideas about the senses and the role of the human body and the human sensorium in communicating with the spirit world. It does all of this through a study of food and consumption, both at the altar and at the table and the ways that they influenced each other. It's a really fascinating project. Well, can you say a little bit about the genesis of this project in particular? Now that we've heard a little bit about um, your interest in early China in general, why, how did you develop an interest in and, and work on this project in, in particular? Um, well, it's, it's, it's partly sort of, you know, building on interests that I've, that I've you know, developed in, in, in previous publications and partly, uh, you know, partly accident, really, and coincidence. I actually like the idea that one gets interested in a topic sometimes you know, entirely by coincidence rather than after sort of you know, long years of strategic thought. Um, <laughs> this particular one, I mean, I, I, I did a book on animals or animal culture as it is you know, reflected in texts of the period you know, years ago. And of course, you know, one of the contexts in which you know, many texts of early China talk about the animal world is, of course, talking about animals as sacrificial victims, as things to be offered up to the spirits or things to be consumed in the context of a ritual uh, sacrifice and so on. And um, I suppose <clears throat> yeah, a logical sort of uh, outflow is that is then going to a little bit more of the context of what sacrifice essentially is and what sacrifice uh, means. Now, as you know, there is a huge anthropological, theoretical literature on sacrifice, the notion of sacrifice, and how this is translated, you know, in various ancient civilizations. <clears throat> My particular interest wasn't exactly sort of to pick a debate, you know, with the grand theorists who, you know, who, 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 who've obviously uh, uh, give a bit of thought about uh, on the subject, but I was actually quite interested in the mechanics of what people were doing at the time when trying to perform sacrifices. So my first interest was, was, was sacrifice, simply because there's so much in the text that talks about sacrifice. And secondly, of course, sacrifice, the offering or the seeking of a connection with the spirit world or with the unseen world through the offering of food and drink and through communally partaking of food and drink, of course, is perhaps constant mechanisms of Chinese religion up to the present day. And so I thought, well, is there information in the text itself? Is there a way in which we can... In, in which we can first try and systematize it a little bit, but is there something that we can learn by simply looking at the details, at the mechanics of how people handled, you know, sacrificial offerings? And so that really set me off then sort of uh, exploring uh, how food or sacrificial food culture reveals all sorts of things about the world of sensation, you know, about the notion of sagehood, about, um, <clears throat> you know, flavor, fragrance. And I started to gradually use it, not simply as an intrinsically interesting sort of uh, topic to explore, but actually as a window to explore some ideas, you know, in Chinese thought, you know, more generally. So it was, uh, 
it, 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 I had never actually suspected that, that you know, I would deviate as far as I have, and perhaps you know, partly also uh, a bit unsuccessfully at times, from you know, it being a very technical study you know, of, of a set of texts. And I, I suppose what I've done here and there is kind of bled myself a little bit and tried to think along with the texts as much as trying to simply um, you know, reproduce or reflect or, or, or sort of give an account of what the texts uh, say or of how much material there is out there. Now you say um, a little, you directly address at the beginning of the book um, what you mean when you, uh, by these texts, right? So you've, you've mentioned the texts um, that you've looked at. And you, you talk about the nature of the sources that you use in the study, and you explicitly say um, that you chose not to incorporate some of them, so material sources, and you chose to focus on a particular set of textual resources um, that you're bringing to bear and looking at these issues. Can you say a little bit about that and the, the nature of the sources that you um, that you used for this and why you, you made the choice that you did to use certain kinds of texts and not others? Well, I've... I've... Firstly, I've mostly focused on, on textual sources, uh-huh. and that's partly because there's a great deal of text out there. And secondly, I think that to really uh, to really make a, a, a sort of a considerate case and draw in you know, the wealth of archaeological material that we have in the period requires you know the kind of training, the kind of specialism which which I do not possess, and I think that. You know, perhaps in tandem, you know, with professional art historians and, and with archaeologists, you know, one might come up with a, you know, with a slightly different account, or at least with a, uh, an account, you know, that opens up new possibilities. So it's mostly texts that are focused on, texts which roughly are datable, uh, let's say, you know, from what's known as you know the spring and autumn period. We go, let's say, roughly 9th, 8th century BC into then the early empire, and I try to sort of have a, have a cut-off date you know, in, in the Eastern Han period, you know, the 1st and 2nd century AD. Um, the sources, of course, are hugely diverse. I mean, I suppose what the book is trying to do is not to zoom in on the source and do a case study of you know, the particular topic in a particular text. But what I'm trying to do, in a sense, is bring in as much relevant material that I've been able to locate in both transmitted and, you know, newly archaeologically uh, recovered texts, and then see whether, basically, you know, they follow a narrative which, you know, which, you know, which makes sense. Um, it means that obviously there is a huge uh, segment of you know the source bases that consists of you know the ritual canon, you know, which will deal in a very sort of detailed manner with the nitty gritties of, 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 of sacrifices and banqueting. Um, there is a great deal of of the philosophical or the masters of philosophy of the period involved in. in, in uh, in, in at least the account of two, two of perhaps three chapters of the book, and then uh, I try to bring in you know relevant excavated texts uh, that bear on the subject, and and when one of course deals with this period, and this is something which I'm sure um, my colleagues uh, uh, at least you know will sympathise with, you know one is by necessity sometimes, of course, uh, almost, you know, forced, you know, to, you know, to extrapolate a number of things from a patchy source record or perhaps uh, to work on a narrative which to assert is a sort of, you know, a cut and paste work because, of course, some of our texts are very difficult to date. We know we can composition of these texts is highly problematic in the case of many of them, but most of the texts that have come to us as quote-unquote uh, uh, 
textual units today, that they are layer texts, that they are texts that one could potentially dissect into various you know, subtexts and so on. Um, but I wanted to stay away from these highly text technical discussions uh, because I sometimes feel that when we look at the rich textual record of early China, uh, we, 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 which is extremely complicated to grasp, mm-hmm. that we try, that we sometimes hesitate, you know, to stand back a little bit and, and, and try and sort of take, I wouldn't say a bird's eye view, but a little bit more of a, you know, of a thematic view of things. I mean, I think one of the things that, the, that perhaps scholarship on Mediterranean uh, antiquity has been very successful and ever since the late 19th century. So ever since anthropologists got interested in using the classics, uh, what it's what is done very successfully is actually try and engage information from these texts. You know, to to to, to think about some of the grander narratives uh, that might that you know, that might be uh, reflected, you know, in our, in early civilizations. And of course, in Chinese studies, we are not there yet in the sense that we still have a lot of pioneering textual analysis and dissection to do before we can, you know, with any confidence, use uh, our texts uh, for all intents and purposes. But but I think that we ought to sometimes be prepared to take the risk and say, well, yes, with all the reservations we have about dating, uh, with all the reservations we have about, you know, how representative is this particular text, you know, of this particular region, you know, of this particular idea at this particular time, we ought to, you know, for the sake also, I think, of, of, of a readership, uh, we ought to be uh, prepared to step back a bit and, and, and actually not necessarily get distracted all the time uh, by, by almost sort of, um, you know, questioning the very, the, the, the very possibility you know, of, of, of trying to write a narrative about early China, even with sources that are very, you know, sometimes very difficult to date to particular times and places. One of the kinds of sources, I mean, following this line um, through, and I think it's a really productive way of thinking about how to sort of conceptualize and use sources that are fragmentary, both early China um, sources and also, you know, for perhaps historians or ethnographers who are working on other kinds of fragmentary sources, this is also the case. But one of the kinds of sources that you use um, throughout the book, and we'll get into the nitty-gritty um, in the chapters in a few moments, but um, are sources from ritual canon. Now, you mention, um, I, I bring this up because you mentioned this in the book as, as an opportunity. Um, and using ritual canon as a source, because these kinds of sources are highly prescriptive, and your interest is on some level in getting at practices. Can you talk a little bit about the um, the, the methods that you're using here, or perhaps um, if you if you prefer the more general issues involved as they apply to this particular case that you're working on, of trying to understand practice through ritual canon, through texts that are highly prescriptive and understood to be that. Well, obviously, I mean, when you work with ritual texts, you know, or even when you work with, with, with legal texts or administrative texts, they are by nature prescriptive. I mean, right. they, they do, they, 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 they tell us how, you know, a user or somebody who is a participant in a particular, how somebody is expected to behave and what is expected, you know, to happen. Now, obviously, um, you know, that, that, you know, that poses you know, some limitations as to how you relate that to what actually happens in practice. Um, but even if only, let's say, even if only 20% or 10% of all the detailed prescriptions regarding how you should treat you know, spirits with sacrificial offerings, even if only 10% of that was put into practice, or even if, you know, the prescriptive world of ritual texts, as it was very like, it was very likely the case, even if that world, you know, was, was, was interpreted and was put into practice according to sorts of interpretations, and even if, if people you know, would only sort of use the texts pro forma, um, you know, it still, in my view, you know, offers a window into, you know, some of the basic 
concepts around which uh, uh, people, you know, in a ritual setting in early China may have behaved. Um, I'll give you an example. I mean, one of the uh, central sacrificial offerings that appears in ritual texts is an offering that, that, that I refer to in the book as the stew or the gongling. Right. Period. You know, this being, according to sort of the aggregate of evidence we have, a, you know, a soup that consists of a whole, sorts, you know, a whole series of ingredients. And, um, you know, which, you know, one must assume was one of the things that, we, that was offered up in, you know, these rich arrays of, you know, vessels and, and material evidence that's, that's come to us. Now, obviously, one must assume that if there are prescriptive texts about about a particular soup that needs to be offered up to the, to, to, to the spirit world, that localities or that certain groups of the population uh, or that, uh, that certain interpretations would be given, you know, to that. And so, you know, whatever that particular sacrificial offering was at the time or at every time and in each place, we probably shall never know. But what is interesting is some of the ideas that surround, uh, this particular stew and why, you know, uh, this is such a central, you know, offering in, in many rituals. And then you see in the, you, you see in the text this whole narrative about the stew being a symbol for harmony because it consists of various ingredients, none of which should overpower the other. You know, it, 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 it has to be well balanced. It has to be, uh, you know, perfectly cooked. And so you see a whole set of symbolical values feeding off that particular soup, so to speak, which then, you know, say something about, you know, the symbolism that, 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 that may have surrounded the sacrificial altars at the time. And, and even if obviously you know, we cannot engage in a sort of a ritualist reconstruct or literalist reconstruction of ritual at the time, you know, it, 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 uh, it tells us, you know, that perhaps, you know, this idea that, you know, harmony or the fact that, that, that ritual is a social occasion in which one you know, expresses ideas of, of harmony or companionship or even political kind of uh, connectedness, um, that, that was not an unlikely idea. Uh, whatever soup was offered up, you know, in, in, in any occasion, place. And so it's a little bit like, you know, one, one can have a perfectly prescriptive uh, scenario laid out for a banquet, even today, or a formal dinner. Uh, it's not going to tell you necessarily that this is exactly how the dinner at the particular time happened. But of course, you will probably know what was in the menu. And you will probably know what people were expected to do, you know, when they were uh, uh, invited, you know, at the table, so to speak. So it it um, it does offer you know, a sort of a valuable window into into uh, events. But of course, in a sense, I mean, we're not writing history. You know, we're sort of trying to sort of write a history of mentalities or a sort of a. a it is a history of ideas without the ideas necessarily explicitly or theoretically having been formulated very clearly in the text itself. And so we're trying to sort of, we're trying to, uh, we're trying to tease them out you know, between, you know, between the lines or between, between slips, I should say. Sure. I, and I think this tension between prescription or prespe- uh, prescriptivity and practice um, it's just one of the tensions that really animate the, the subject of the book. It's, um, there are other tensions like um, the tension between, on the one hand, um, sort of food tying the subject to this world of delight and sensory appreciation, and on the other hand, the, those same foodstuffs, and the, and including the alcohol, potentially clouding the judgment and forms of engagement of the people who are 
um, eating it and sort of imbibing it. And it's these tensions, these, these are two of many, many kinds of tensions that you explore in the book um, that really bring the issues to life, and not just for readers now, but also for the people writing about them in the text that you're looking at in early China. And I think this is one of the things that works so well, is that sort of meaning and these mentalities and these ideas emerge out of these tensions that you're presenting us without your having to say, and certainly the book doesn't, doesn't do this, which I think is wonderful, early Chinese thought was like this. This is a book that's really about bringing to life through sort of celebrating these tensions and getting inside the nitty-gritty of these tensions um, that seem to have animated discourse about food and consumption and ritual and sacrifice in early China. So well, I'm glad to hear that you know at least you know in your reading of it, some of this some of this was clear. I hope you know some readers uh, you know will agree with I I I I think what I mean there is there is a whole host of literature out there, of course, on Chinese food culture, right, or dietary culture in the contexts, you know, of, of the Chinese tradition, be it modern, contemporary, or be it in the past. And there is a, there are you know wonderful histories out there, especially you know produced by Japanese and Chinese scholars that will, will, will that do an excellent job in writing the material history of food and in writing you know, what people ate at what time and what was available and how it was called or how it wasn't called. And I've, I've, I've learned a great deal from that, but what, what I felt, you know, what struck me most when I was reading many narratives in which people talk about, you know, the ritual consumption of food is precisely this whole idea of it putting human beings in front of a fundamental tension. In other words, that those things that allow you to, to, to establish a sort of a sensory bond with the spirit world, with your ancestors, namely you know, the sacrificial offerings in the sacrificial ale and the alcohol that is offered up, or the sacrificial meats that are being offered up, that are being exchanged, that it is precisely the same ingredients that, uh, that, that, that enable you to have contact with the spirit world that might actually tempt you or tempt the performance of a ritual uh, to go overboard and and you know and indulge. So alcohol is is well a little bit like the English word spirit and spirit, which means two different things. I mean it is it, it can be a very exalted way in which you establish connection you know, with spirits, but at the same time, of course, it's a very risky substance because if, if a ritual obviously requires the communal consumption of alcohol, uh, we must assume, as the texts tell us, that these rituals were not always very, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, very, very clean and controlled operations, and that obviously there was a there was a festive as well as a uh, as a sort of uh, 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 more 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 ritual aspect to this, and that's always that's always that struck me as something that's really interesting. On the one hand, we have these prescriptive texts telling exactly what you should and what you should not do, how you should hold your cup, you know, like who should have the first sip, uh, which part of, of 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 the carcass offered up should should be offered up first. And on the other hand, we have all this anecdotal evidence in texts of rulers, basically, that are drunk, that can't control themselves, that neglect politics because basically they are, they are seen to be too much interested in, 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 in imbibing, you know, uh, <clears throat> all these delicacies which, which on another occasion, you know, one may wish to sacrifice. So I felt that was, that was, that was a creative tension with which I could work in the book. And, and, and in a sense, you know, it led me to think about, you know, perhaps, you know, that, that's one of the sort of fundamental patterns if, if one thinks about, you know, ideas such as self-cultivation uh, and morality in the context, you know, of, of, of early Chinese texts. You know, that the same things, the same ingredients, the same tools that allow you to cultivate yourself as a perfect gentleman or as somebody who lives a very healthy life, if you look at the medical picture, those very same ingredients, those very same strategies, in the very same context in which people perform them, can also 
you need people to go the opposite way. And so I, I felt that that was quite, quite interesting. I mean, to go back to the example of alcohol, um, of which there's a great deal of information in Texas, um, water, plain water, which was known in all sorts of ritual terms, uh, was known as sacrificial ale in some texts. In other words, it was it, 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 it was thought of as being a very exalted and a very 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 efficient uh, sacrificial offering, and so the idea that <clears throat> in the most tasteless, in the most the most insipid uh, ingredients, you know, are the most important sacrificial offerings, uh, was something that I had never thought about when reading about you know when, when reading you know very you know, edifying studies about, you know, the image of water in Chinese culture, you know, the image of water in Taoist thought and so on. So I felt that these are parallels that are quite striking. If you see, you know, that people talk about water in a sacrificial context, almost, you know, in the same terms, in the same kind of, the same kind of connotations as you see them used at a more philosophical level by, by, by <clears throat> the matters of philosophy. That, that was that was interesting, and that was something that might tell us something about about how what at first sight seemed to be quite trivial and material, you know, ritual acts, maybe reflections of you know ideas that were out there and that perhaps have only survived in a more abstract form in the text of the philosophers. Absolutely, and just to kind of stick with this for a moment, um, this gets us into the into the book. You've mentioned. The stew and bringing up right now the importance of water and blandness and sort of almost tastelessness as what you're aiming for in this stew that you're going to offer up to the spirits. This is also to me one of the most striking things um, that I learned um, in this book because I think a lot of us when we think about um, ritual sacrifice we have this immediate image of very powerful sensory experiences, right? You think of the incense and you think of this sort of very um, the powerful smells and things to to emphasize here the importance of again this tension between taste and tastelessness one of these animating tensions in the book but the importance of blandness as that which is going to communicate in ritual cuisine with the spirits um, was really striking I and mean, can you actually talk about that a little bit as um, to whatever extent you want to as as one of these tensions in the book I guess flavor and tasting on the one hand, and then the importance of blandness and tastelessness, mm -hmm. and water and the stew on the other. Yeah. Uh, well, what, what struck me, and of course I have to, I, I have to, I suppose I have to come clear in advance, I mean, that what I'm, what I'm doing is in a way, you know, I'm trying to do text structures in the text. I'm not, I'm trying to sort of put things together. Mm -hmm. Uh, as little building blocks. So, so, but if you were to think of, of, of this tension between, between flavor and, and, and blandness, or even between, you know, color and the absence of color, or, but Brooke doesn't talk about it, but I'm sure that, you know, what one could extend is to sound, perhaps even to vision. Um, but, but this is, what's interesting is that, the blandness or the abstention of things that might tempt the senses seems to be a theme that percolates not just ritual texts, but also, you know, the texts of our philosophers that talk about, you know, how the perfect, you know, gentleman or the, the, the sage you know, ought to behave in himself. There seems to be, there seems to be an idea that whilst one ought to be able to sense and partake of all the stimuli that that impress us, you know, in, in the world we live in, then actually it's by gradually, you know, being able to abstain one, to abstain from you know this whole sort of uh, sensory feast around us that one sort of understands the deeper meanings of life, of the cosmos, uh, um, of 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 the things that ordinary mortals who are really stuck to you know, to 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 daily to the daily palate, so to speak, that they fail to grasp, and so it's it's quite interesting to to, to see uh, 
even in, 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 in sacrifice, that, um, you know, sensory memory seems to be very closely connected with, you know, the kind of fragrance and the kind of flavor that ought to be connected with sacrificial offerings. In the sense that if you're trying to make offerings that have to have an immediate impact, or if you're trying to offer uh, sacrifices to ancestors or to perhaps even you know, spirits that are quite recent in your memory, you know, you imbue them with, you know, a relatively generous types of flavors. It's almost like, let's say, if you want to offer a sacrifice to your grandmother, and you know that your grandmother had a, you know, had a sort of a, a soft spot for, I don't know what, for, for, for tomatoes, so to speak, then of course, you know, you offer, you know, a tomato stew uh, in the hope that you will make sensory connection with your grandmother. Now, obviously, the further back you go down, time and the more distant your ancestors are from them, the more difficult of course it becomes to establish contact with them and then settling down on a particular flavor or a particular offering is more risky because you don't know you know whether it will ever be appreciated you know by the spirits and so you see that how more the more distant or even the more the more important you know the spirits or the ancestors are that you seek to address the more flavorless and the more bland the offering becomes. So it's a little bit like a, what you do in it, what you do in a sacrificial ritual is, is you offer in the hope that the sacrifices will be appreciated by the spirits, but there is never a guarantee indeed you know, that they will. That's why all these rituals seem to have been, in many ways, also uh, quite nervous occasions in which one tries all sorts of formulas in the hope that finally, of course, there would be a response. From the spirit world, and so I like this idea. But I was I, when you read philosophical texts, uh, and anybody who teaches an introductory course, you know, on you know the Taoist classics, you know, will 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 talk about uh, about about you know, non-action, the absence of color, the absence of flavor, about water being this foundational symbol because you know, it, it symbolizes, uh, <clears throat> you know, the. the that it symbolizes, you know, the potency of everything, while at the same time also uh, saying that the most simple things are ultimately, you know, the most important things uh, in order to gain understanding of the world. But it's interesting to see that happening in, in sort of the context, you know, of, of, of you know sacrificial ritual as well, almost as if as if to say, well, if you want to really understand what is uh, what is the essence you know of the world or the cosmos in which we live you need to do this through gradually uh, sort of desensitizing yourself from the colors the flavors the sounds that you're used to and that by being able to do that you have that understanding but it doesn't mean necessarily you ought to always abstain from them, and that's the, that's, that's the tension. One of the really um, great things about this is that the book, um, especially at the end of the book, chapter, the end of chapter five, talks about this not just in the realm of ideas, but also um, in terms of material culture. So I loved these examples of special hats um, that people would wear to prevent them from seeing too clearly, and you talk about earplugs, um, it's sort of special earplugs that um, rulers and sages could use to prevent themselves from hearing, um, it, which is actually just really interesting and super cool. And so this is a plug for listeners who are interested in material culture. Um, it's, there's a lot of that in here um, in really fascinating ways. Another thing, while we're kind of on that topic, um, another thing along these lines of sort of moving or ways that the book moves um, from the you know these kind of prescriptive texts and ideas to the real kind of um, meat and potatoes, no pun intended, of how these rituals were actually practiced, um, is the treatment here, and this is in chapter four, of the economics of sacrifice. Um, now, this is a really powerful chapter that looks at the economy of religious sacrifice um, and the ways that um, the demands of the spirit economy could undermine the demands of the 
conventional economy. And the, the economy really in um, very basic terms, I mean, dollars and cents, and how much money did this cost? And often this seemed like this was an, an enormous um, outlo- outlay of resources that was involved in sustaining a sacrificial cult um, in early China. Can you talk a little bit about, um, for listeners who may not have had a chance yet to read the book, um, this uh, really the, the scale of the economics of sustaining a sacrificial cause? Sort of, this seemed like it was an enormous set of resources, lots of people involved. Um, this created potentially all kinds of problems and debates about. Again, this tension between these two economies, another one of the motivating tensions of the book in the text you're looking at. So. Can you say a little bit about this, um, the economic demands of sustaining this? Sure. Well, I, I think when we talk about things such as sacrifice or even ritual, we, we, we tend to just conceive of them as, uh, as you know, these rather sort of, um, as things that happen around the sacrificial altar or, made, or in a church or in a temple and that basically... We're simply dealing with, uh, you know, the offering up of goods at that particular moment in time, and after which everybody goes home uh, and, and and sort of goes back. Struck me really is the if you look at texts of the period, that the majority, literally the majority of information that we have touching on sacrifice deals with the economics behind the whole system. And it does, I mean, there were various aspects to this. First of all, of course, there were different types of sacrifices at different levels of different levels of importance. And of course, they were also of a different size and required different resources. But overall, it is absolutely striking in in descriptions of, of the, let's say, bureaucracy or officialdom of some of the warring states in the early, early empire. That there is, that there, there are countless numbers of officials assigned to managing certain aspects related to sacrificial culture. This ranged from, uh, you know, catching the fish or managing the rivers out of which, you know, certain uh, sacrificial fish were to be sourced to people who obviously managed uh, the stables of the sacrificial victims to people who produce the sacrificial robes and so on and so on. Uh, there is a huge amount of information out there. It seems to me that almost every single official function in early China, to a certain degree, or any bureaucratic official function, seems to double up as also a function that's related somehow to sacrifice. So if you were somebody who was to cater, you know, for the imperial uh, table, so to speak, or you know, for the imperial kitchens. Then you were not simply, of course, catering for the food that you know the emperor was to take in, but you were also catering for the sacrificial foods that would accompany his meals or some of the rituals uh, surrounding, you know, his meal times. So first. There were lots of people involved. Secondly, and of course it's very difficult to put, you know, to put a figure on this or to quantify this because our data are not complete enough. It is also absolutely clear that uh, the obligation to sacrifice, the obligation to participate in sacrifice, or the obligation to uh, contribute ingredients uh, or locations or human resources to certain sacrifices, was a real economic burden on certain segments of early Chinese society to such an extent that one could even argue that some rulers may have used sacrifice or sacrificial obligation as an excuse to draw taxes and economic resources out of it. In other words, if you could, if you, if you could, if you could persuade your your subjects that uh, plowing the fields at such an intensity and filling the granaries you know, at such and such a time in the year and providing you know, an X number of sacrificial oxen, that that really was for sacrificial purposes, 
you might be more persuasive actually to extract these resources out of them rather than if you were to simply say, well, you know, this is your, this is your, your due in taxation you know, to your overlords. So I have a feeling that, you know, that the sacrificial economy or the basically economic life as it was focused on or as it sort of emerged around I think, I'm sorry, Ro, I think we lost that very last sentence. Can you just say that very last sentence again? <laughs> All right. Or sort of the, you have a feeling that the sacrificial economy as it emerged. Sacrificial economy, the economic imperatives mm -hmm. that surround the organization of sacrifice were far more important you know, than, 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 than you may have believed. Because in essence, obviously, if, I mean, sacrifice in essence, at the time, consists of an exchange of material goods between human beings and the spirit world. And of course, so you need a system in place that manages the production of these material goods. And that seems to have been rather important uh, at the time. Um, and, and so, if we look at a number of, we have concrete examples, of course, of some of the, you know, the emperors in the first emperor, you know, Han or Di, you know, sort of the, the latest reigning emperors of the Western Han period of, of, of performing sacrifices, which, which would be enterprises that would take two or three years of preparation that would involve not only the emperor leaving the capital, you know, with a cortege accompanied by you know, thousands of, of, of servants, it would also involve uh, years in advance very often uh, that, you know, forests were cleared, or that a path was cleared, you know, on the sort of journey uh, of, of, of the imperial cortege, it would mean that entire regions near a sacrificial site would be charged, or that they would you know, be solely dedicated to maintaining and producing, you know, the goods and the ingredients uh, that were needed for a sacrifice. So we have a whole economy, basically, uh, surrounding, you know, sacrificial culture, which I think, you know, is 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 is, is it's actually in a way still surviving in China too. And that's one of the, like I said, one of the really fascinating aspects of the book is that discussion, and that's also um, though it exists at the same time. Again, another one of these productive tensions, um, with a long um, series of discussions in the book of not just the, um, or that help us think about the materiality and the practices surrounding um, food in sacrificial um, culture and food in early China, along with the metaphorical importance of some of these materials. And so they're important materially, but also metaphorically. And one of the, we've talked a little bit about alcohol, but another one of these kind of touchstone materials that does produce these germinal tensions in the um, in the material that you're working with, as far as I can tell for, as a reader, um, is meat. Um, this comes up a, a few different ways um, in early in the book, um, both as you talk about um, meat exchange, um, food taboos and sort of um, abstention from meat, meat and morality. It also occurs in metaphors of sagehood um, that employ the figure of the, the uh, butcher, right? And so meat yeah. is another one of these, um, you can really follow this theme throughout the book as well, um, that shows up in different ways, metaphorically mm -hmm. as well as materially. Can you talk a little bit um, about that? And, and I know that's kind of, and some level of ridiculous question to ask you to talk a little bit about um, the importance of meat um, and morality, because it's such an important theme um, in so many ways in the book. But perhaps um, if there are particular aspects of this that especially interest you or that you find especially um, surprising or interesting to think about these ideas with. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, meat is a very important, it's not, not simply a very important sort of ingredient in our text, but it's also a very important idea, as you say, mm -hmm. a very important concept. I mean, first of all, meat, if you were to, meat was a luxury product. You know, in early China, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about the fact that, you know, the consumption of meat you know, it was reserved, you know, pretty much, you know, to elites, 
and that actually, uh, you know, meat was not hard, as high, you know, on the menu perhaps, uh, in early China as, you know, most certain segments, you know, of, of you know, Mediterranean, you know, Greece or Rome. Um, <clears throat> but what's interesting about meat is that it has been invested with power, you know, from you know, pre-imperial days in the sense that, you know, sharing meat, offering parts of a, of a meat sacrifice was a way in which you forged political bonds with your overlords. So basically meat, you know, was a political passport as much as it was, you know, this thing that you offered up in sacrifice. And so, you know, to be given meat, to be shared meat with someone, you know, meant, you know, to, you know, be accepted into a political allegiance at least, you know, for you know, a period or for an occasion. So there was, there was this whole, this whole culture of meat as a significant gift. Um, of course, you know, the handling of meat, uh, the butchering of meat, uh, is, is, is a topic that occurs, you know, quite extensively in our text. And I had never really thought about it as, 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 as closely, uh, before. But when I start to thrall to the text and look for all narratives that describe butchers, or officials that deal with the handling of meat. It struck, it struck me that actually, first of all, they're all pretty important officials that operate very closely to the heart you know, of political power because you know, not only are they feeding the rulers, but they are actually, you know, they're, they're, they're managing and manipulating, you know, what is a highly, not, not only a highly nutritious thing, but also highly some symbolically potent kind of thing. And what I discovered then too is that Ways in which you chop up meat, in other words, you know, the ways in which you partition a carcass, in which you divide meat, in which you, uh, in which order you uh, distribute meat to your distance. These narratives, you know, were very, very, uh, metaphorically laden. In other words, you have all these stories about important ministers and Important advisors that started as butchers and people who are very equitable in dividing meat, for example, early on in their career when they were administrators of a locality. And so it's almost like sort of the butchering of things, being able to divide uh, <clears throat> a carcass up into right proportions, was used as this kind of metaphor uh, uh, of being able then also, you know, to butcher society in a way that is. Uh, you know, that works, that works aptly. So there, there's, there's, there's the image of the butcher and, and, and the butcher and of course the cook as somebody who is not simply, uh, providing nutrition, but somebody by, who, who through uh, skillfully manipulating food is actually morally educating or contributing to the moral behavior of whomever is being fed. So this is quite interesting. So feeding your superior is not simply a question of making sure he, you know, that he stays healthy and that you know, he's well fed. But it also was a process that was very closely linked to instilling a sense you know, of, of morality in the person. And in the case of meat, you see this in quite a few stories in which, for example, um, the presence or the of meat at certain occasions is interpreted as, you know, a political message or as you know, an indirect condemnation of the moral character of the person. So we have a very nice example for it in, in a set of texts that deal with the education of a young prince, where the text tells us that if a young prince misbehaves, in other words, doesn't, doesn't do what he's expected to do, that the cook or the steward is entitled to take his meat away until you know, until he batters his ways, and then there are puns on on, on you know, the specific character for meat and the specific character for goodness, you know, which happens to be uh, you know sort of etymologically related or at least phonetically related. Um, but of course, there are all sorts of other stories that that deal with uh, pregnant mothers only being being 
or being encouraged, you know, only to eat meat cut in certain proportions because it might influence the moral behavior of the, of the fetus or the character of the child that's being born. Um, so there is a whole narrative uh, connected with meat that 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 deals with you know with with morality, with political power, um, with with of course privilege as well. And then the other way around, also, you know, meat together with alcohol, then are the two pivotal kind of moments in periods of fasting and in periods of abstention. And so I think it's, it, you know, meat is, meat is a nice way into, 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 uh, you know, getting a sense of how, you know, Politically significant, you know, the act of both eating and feeding others and feeding the spirit world was in ancient China, and perhaps even if you look at, you know, at, 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 you know, formal banquets, you know, in China today, or uh, the, the, there is still quite a lot of this lingering around. Uh, <clears throat> I think, in um, I, along those lines, I think um, for listeners who are thinking of teaching, for example, like putting together a graduate um, seminar syllabus or a reading list in food in China, one of the things that might be really productive for students, exactly along the lines that you're describing, is sort of reading, um, reading this book in conjunction with or perhaps in the same classroom setting as like Judy Farquhar or Judith Farquhar's Appetites, for example, right? To sort of look at, um, for example, I, I think to look at ways in which these concerns with um, ritual and banqueting and food might manifest in very, very different contexts and very, very different source materials and time periods, but in ways that might speak across um, the distance of time. So I think this is very assignable for listeners. Um, in other words, I think um, there's, a, there's a great um, s- a syllabus to be made using this book on um, food and consumption in China. I think that would be good for students. Um, so one of the sort of last things that I want to ask you about, um, because you've mentioned that there's some great stories here and when we talk about meat and the butchers, one of the really wonderful things about um, the book is how much you've given us these just wonderful anecdotes and stories and moments from lots of different kinds of texts that both animate and punctuate um, the discussion in each one of the chapters. So um, either staying with the meat example and the butchers, and you have us stories of Chef Ding, I think it is, and Yi Yin, and these other sort of prototypical or per, perhaps paradigmatic figures and stories about cooks and butchers. Were there any stories, either about meat or perhaps there's another one that immediately comes to mind, um, that as you were reading the sources and working through these materials struck you as particularly um, surprising or particularly interesting or particularly amusing and that you'd want to share with listeners or that that and you don't have to sort of go reaching but anything that immediately pops into your mind as well that's a cool story or that's pretty funny um in the case of well i think in the case of meat obviously i mean the story of butcher thing in the in the drums which mm-hmm. is you know which is which is well known you know remains one of you know the classic can you, you know, actually like? Can you describe that a little bit for listeners who may not? Sure. It, des- it describes basically, you know, a, 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 a butcher who uh, is explaining, you know, to his whole, you know, why ways that he manages to carve up that many oxen without his life ever getting blunt, and then he goes into a beautiful uh, bit of discourse in which he actually says, basically. Avoiding hard bones and avoiding, you know, sort of hard junctions and knots and so on in the carcass. And basically, the art of cutting consists in finding the way of least resistance as you cleave through the carcass. And that's, of course, that beautiful idea uh, in Taoist context that the most efficient type of action you can undertake is an action that requires the least energy and that is basically inspired by the composition or the natural circumstances. Of the thing that you are dealing with, so that 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 of course you know is 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 is, is one you know that that, um, that I would certainly you know certainly 
in, in fact, in fact, even people who are not familiar with the uh, of course, there are plenty of other anecdotes, and I think in terms of, I'm sure that in terms of, in, in, in terms of the classroom atmosphere, uh, I'm sure, I mean, teachers have a different view of what useful is, uh, but, but there is clearly, I mean, a whole sort of, you know, lore of stories out there that deal with rulers who fail to manage, you know, the intake of alcohol, either because, you know, they don't quite be rich. You know that overindulgence in alcohol is used as a standard way of, of of describing something as morally defunct and a bad ruler. So uh, that that certainly uh, is, is is an interesting theme uh, throughout that. Because one of my most favourite, I suppose, not anecdotes but statements in one of my texts is an accusation, basically by uh, you know by a thinker known as Morton against. Uh, what he refers to as the rule or quote-unquote confusions to were known for elaborate funerary rituals, where basically uh, um, <clears throat> the Mohi, uh, basically, you know, the, basically just go from one to the non-reverence around the funeral, but they, they, they look at the sort of the festive advantages really of, of, of official ritual and I thought that's quite nice because he uses the image of these confusions of walking from one uh, funeral to the other as hamsters kind of sort of as hamsters as hamsters really sort of like doing their fill you know like getting 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 a good feed of the sacrificial offerings and the wine you know and the ale that surrounds you know, these rituals so this whole idea that you know the most re- you know, can also be, you know, an incentive, you know, for the most overworked, festive, overindulgence is something which is quite, you know, quite revealing in our texts. Well, on that note, um, I think the hamsters are a good uh, place for us to start wrapping up. Um, Rural, there's a whole bunch in this book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, they're just fascinating discussions of all kinds of different kinds of texts, crimes, um, legal codes, um, sages with superpowers. There's a whole lot in here that um, is um, going is a, really a gift for the reader that we haven't um, had a chance to talk about. Is there anything about the book in particular that you want to uh, mention for listeners who may not um, yet have had a chance to read it that we didn't have a chance to talk about? I think you know, it's you know, this, this particular type of book... Um, you know, it has. It, I've I've tried, you know, to 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 you know to be as generous as I could with you know factual accounts and including information, perhaps on you know on, on, on early Chinese dietary culture, as I thought was relevant. <laughs> but I think what might be useful for readers is it's actually a book about food, which really isn't about food. And, and in many ways, what it does, it is uses it uses food or, or food culture as a window on, uh, on 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 Chinese thought. Really. And, 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 and I hope what you know what readers might take away, you know, from this particular uh, account is that you know there are. Very fruitful ways in which one can, uh, in which one, you know, can, can, can examine and try to understand, you know, more abstract ideas in ancient civilizations by starting from what at first sight sometimes seem to be the most obvious daily kind of preoccupations, uh, such as, you know, dining and eating and feeding others. And so <clears throat> I think as long as one doesn't have the expectation to find in here uh, a sort of, you know, culinary treatise or something which might be useful as part of a course on, on Chinese cooking, but literally sort of takes it as an account in which we think along with food, then readers hopefully, you know, will, will, will certainly take something away you know, from this. Uh, but of course, that's also its limitation. It is, it's, it's, it's limited in the sense that 
I am perhaps to a certain degree only using food as a window and therefore to what extent this is a, 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 a reflection of actual life is something which when we deal with civilizations in the past is always you know, to, to a certain extent an open question and will remain so. So now that um, this book is out and you've um, and it's a wonderful book, uh, what's next for you? What are you working on now that's particularly inspiring you, and what can we look forward to reading about next? And perhaps those two things are not the same. <laughs> perhaps they're two different answers. <laughs> to the uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm increasingly. I mean, because this particular sort of project, you know, forced me, you know, to to look in, you know, in substantial detail to text that deal with the materiality of food and the production of sacrificial goods and so on. And so right now I am getting increasingly interested in, in, in sort of the economic landscape, you know, behind this kind of culture in two ways. And I'm very interested in, 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 in agriculture or agricultural thought as a window on the society uh, in question, partly because, of course, lots of the sacrifices and lots of the culture that surrounds, you know, the sacrificial religion is intimately tied, you know, to 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 uh, you know agricultural settings and uh, agri <clears throat> agricultural modes of 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 of, of, uh, of 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 living. And on the other hand, the whole uh, debate about overindulgence versus abstention and who can when is one uh, justifiably, uh, or should one justifiably be permitted, you know, to use and consume certain goods for ritual purposes, has led me now to, to, to sort of want to learn a little bit more actually about how people at the time thought about, you know, the larger notions of wealth and benefit, uh, versus profit. You know, what, what was it that made something that was materially there, also morally acceptable. So I'm thinking at the moment along two lines. One is, you know, look at look look at the agricultural sort of scene behind behind our ritual texts. And secondly, you know, sort of uh, the, the the other side of the equation is 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 um, is more the sort of you know the the economics behind it all. Uh, if it is the case. Uh, I mean, I've looked at this. This particular book looks at ritual for a great deal, uh, but of course, there are lots of agents, you know, behind behind ritual that, that deal with, uh, you know, with economic issues. And I'm increasingly interested interested in in in, in some of the economic ideas about you know exchanging goods, about giving, about receiving things, about you know justified expenditure on certain items, and so on. So I'd hope to, you know, I'd hope to, uh, <clears throat> you know, to spend some time, uh, uh, not so much, you know, in with the hope of being able to to write an economic history, but more sort of, you know, to look at our texts with an eye on on, on ideas about wealth, about profits, about poverty, about justified expense, about the morality of material material goods and material. Existence, so that would probably keep me busy for for more years than I than I. <sighs> well, Rob, thank you so much. Um, thanks for making the time. It's a great book. Um, thanks for talking about it with me, and thanks also for your patience and good humor in navigating all of our um, connection issues between the U.S. and the U.K. It's been a, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Carol. You have been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much, and we will see you next time.